0: Again, I want to just welcome you to Hagerstown Church. It really is a privilege to to be here with you this morning and to be able to open up God's Word. And I want you to know that uh, we love you and we are glad that you're here. And so if you don't feel welcome, you should because you are. If you have your Bible or your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open it up to the book of John. John chapter 1 will be there. As you may well know, we're in the middle of a series, and the series is entitled, Who's Your One?, we're asking this question, who is your one? There's somebody in your life that, that God is calling you and he's specifically even placed you in proximity to and for the purpose of sharing this gospel message. We've looked at this idea of what the gospel is. It's good news. There's bad news right now. God has given us good news. and We're to go with that good news. We've received it for ourselves and now we're to go with that good news in the power of the Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, to those who are lost around us. And this week, we, again, we want to specifically look at John chapter 1 and verses 43 through 51. And I want to just go ahead and read those at the beginning, and then we'll jump into our, our study of this passage. And so John chapter 1, verse 43, I'll read down to verse 51. The Bible says this, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, "Follow me." Now Philip was from Bethsaida, City of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Ask God to bless the reading of his word this morning. Again, would you pray with me? Father, these are your words, and so we ask that you bless them. We look to you this morning and not to ourselves, and so guide us and lead us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Here at the end of the passage that we just read, we see Jesus using his favorite title for himself, which is this, the Daniel 7 title for himself, which is the Son of Man, Remember, the Son of Man, it it, it, it points to Jesus' deity and to his dominion. To Jesus' deity and to his dominion. And so it's fitting as we consider Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, all power is given to me. Well, this is a fulfillment of what the prophecy was in Daniel chapter 7. And so Jesus, pointing even now as he speaks to Nathanael, he points to his own deity and he points to his dominion over this earth. He's ushering in the kingdom. It has begun. And here Nathanael and Philip have been invited in. And the message is, again, for you this morning, that you have also been invited in. Would you respond to that this morning? The Son of Man, what does he say about himself? Many times when Jesus speaks about uh, this, this, his title and his identity as the Son of Man, he offers interesting and, and groundbreaking pieces of information, specifically, and my favorite is Luke chapter 19, verse 10. This has really colored and shaded this idea, this series of who's your one. And it's this statement that Jesus makes. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if you highlight, if you write in your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to, to Luke. Just flip over quickly. We won't stay there long. I won't, I'm not even going to reference it much more. But Luke 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man, highlight it, underline it, whatever you do, uh, don't bend the page. That's terrible. I'm just kidding. You, you're welcome to do that as well. But mark it in there. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus came to seek and and he came to save the lost. He came to fulfill that mission statement. That's his mission statement, and he came to fulfill it. And time after time, we we read of Jesus seeking and saving the lost. And when he does, he focuses on typically one person or one group at a time, and he shares the good news with them, and he calls them to repent. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, literally. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, follow me, literally, and I will make you fishers of men. Do as I do. Go where I go. Say as I say. Seek and save the lost, just as you've seen me do. In fact, Jesus' last words as we read a moment ago, right before the ascension, he offers the great commission, or he, instead, he installs the great commission. And he says to them, seek, in essence, seek and save the lost. Find and rescue the hurting, as in Jude, rescue them and save them from the fire and stamp out any fire that's on their clothing. Rescue them, he's saying. And we look at passages like that and we think of the vivid imagery of literally saving somebody from death to life. When we think about being a part of that, it, I don't know, but if you're like me, it, it, it really gets your blood pumping. You get excited. You want to be a part of something like that. We get pumped up for evangelism, for sharing the good news and the gospel message. And we rally here in this room, but then when we are sent out as we are every Sunday, if you're like me, again, it fizzles. And that excitement, it begins to wane, because we see the task at hand, and we know the big picture. And yet we get lost in the weeds. What do we do? What what do we do first? What do we do next? How do we see this great commission fulfilled? We're, We're to evangelize. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And yet we know we're not the first to come in line. And that we're just joining the fight as we have received this message and now we go. And yet we look out across the vast ocean that is our community and we stumble under the load. How are we to accomplish this task? How are we to do it? How will Hagerstown be evangelized? How will Maryland? How will the U.S.? How will Asia? How will Africa? How will Europe? How will South America? How will they be evangelized? What steps do we take next? I think there's a key in this passage this morning, and it's not a a subtle one. It's an obvious model as Christians, as disciples, as followers of Jesus. It's incumbent upon us that we look and see Jesus' method, and then we follow it. So there's there's a message here this morning. If I were to distill the main point down for you this morning, if you were to write anything down, I think this would be a good thing to write. It's this. The Great Commission involves an intentional sharing of essential information followed by a clear invitation. The Great Commission involves an intentional sharing of essential information followed by a clear invitation. So as we reflect on that statement there and this text this morning, I want to ask you three questions. This is, if you will, the, the framework or the outline, the flow of our time together this morning. It's this. First one, who's your one? Three questions. First, who's your one? Who's your one? Who has God sovereignly determined that you are to share the gospel with next? Who are you to find? We read a moment ago, Jesus decided to go find Philip, and he found him. And then after, immediately after Philip is found, he takes the message of what he, of his own personal story and his testimony, and he goes and he seeks out Nathanael, and he finds him, and he shares with him. For Philip, immediately his one was Nathanael. So who's your one? The next question we'll ask you or I'll ask you this morning is this. What's your story? What's your story? As you think of your one and your, who it is that God has called you to go and to share with, what will you share with them? I'll ask this question. What will you actually share with them? Maybe you're like me and you get a task and you get something on your mind and you think, okay, we need to go find this person. We need to go do this thing. We need to get to this place. Maybe that's it. I need to go to this room in the house. And so you, you get to that place and you've forgotten what it is you're to do there. What was the next step? I don't remember. And so maybe you're already there. You've found your one. That was easy. First day, you found that card. And if you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to do that. But there's a, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. They're also at the giving boxes. A bookmark entitled Who's Your One with a perforated portion. You can tear it off. And write the name of the person who you believe God is leading you to share the gospel with intentionally, that they would come to faith. And drop that in that giving box. I would encourage you to do that. Maybe you've done that already. And so you've identified your one, but what will you tell them? Maybe you're struggling to find the words. Well, I'll ask you in just a moment. We'll look. What's your story? You see, Philip just shared his story, he shared what he knew, he shared his testimony. What an encouraging uh, look we will get in just a moment. And lastly, I'll ask you this question, what's their play? What's their play? In other words, what are you asking them to do? What are they to do about the news? When you find that one and you share your story with them, what are you actually inviting them to do? Are you just making a statement of fact? Or should that statement of fact, should that story, should your personal testimony, should that truth also then be punctuated with, A call to action. Of course it should be. So let's jump into these. Who's your one? What's your story? And what's their play? First, who's your one? Look at verse 43 again. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Look at that. Jesus found Philip. If you're looking for something and you find it, right? That's what's happening here. Jesus decides to go to Galilee he makes a, a, a conscious decision to go to this particular place in order to find this particular person. Jesus was looking for Philip. It was no accident. Perhaps you've assumed that the style of Jesus' ministry is like that of a jellyfish. Free floating, carefree, rolling out wherever the current would take him, and that's not the case. Perhaps you've seen pictures or you've been to a Christmas drama or an Easter drama and you see this Jesus that... Just floats around. I don't believe that's what Jesus would have looked like. I believe that Jesus was calculated. And he was focused. And he had time and he would talk. But he knew where he was going. He knew what was happening next. And Jesus, I believe, in a sense, had a one. And his one at this particular point was Philip. This is who he was going to. I want you to think about this. Jesus already knew of Philip. And that's who he went after. I want to tell you my personal testimony this morning is that Jesus knew me. Before I knew him, he knew me. And he came and he sought me and he found me. Not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but according to his mercy, he both sought me and he saved me. And if you are a Christian this morning, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a saint, a part of the church of Christ, then you too can have that testimony and can claim that, that Jesus knew you and he sought you. Perhaps you this morning, Jesus knows, and he is seeking this morning. Not only did he know of Philip, but he also already knew of Nathaniel. Skip down to verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, he's not seen him before, we don't know. But he sees Nathaniel coming and he says, hey, behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Who, who are you? And Jesus answered him, before Philip even spoke to you. When you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the very king of Israel. You see, Jesus knew of Philip and he knew of Nathanael. He was a part of this. Not only did Jesus know Philip and Jesus knew Nathanael, but Philip knew Nathanael. Philip knew who Nathanael was and he went and was looking for Nathanael. He was looking for him. He he went out after him, just as Jesus had done for him. And I want you to catch this. Philip was a disciple. Some people might say, well, at that point, when Jesus first called Philip, he he became a Christian. And while that may be true, I think it's more accurate, it's more compelling and more vivid if we say that Jesus called Philip, and Philip became a disciple. He was a follower. He did as Jesus did. He spoke as Jesus spoke. He went where Jesus went. And immediately, what does Philip do? He goes and finds Nathaniel, just as his master did. He was a true follower. He was modeling what he had seen of his master. May that be a testimony for you this morning. That we would also consider, if we call ourselves followers, if we call ourselves disciples, and maybe even Christians, that we too would mimic our master. And that as we have been found, that we would go and find we would go and find i'm convinced that this issue of finding the next one is one of the biggest hang-ups for disciples today jesus came to seek and to save the lost and oftentimes the lost can be one thing it can be several things if you're like me you lose things every day you're looking for them and there's a lot where would you begin right that's the issue lost is a big group What did Jesus come to save and and seek and save? The lost, and it's this large group. But what did Jesus do? Well, he modeled for us. He started with one, and then another one, and then another one, and then another occasion where he spoke to several people, and then another one, and then another group. This is what Jesus did, and this is what he's called us to do as well. If you think about the the, the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd, what does he do? Well, he, he leaves the safe 99, and what does he do? He goes after the one. You see, the individual, the one, is important to Jesus. The lost sheep, Jesus recognizes, and what does he do? He goes after him. Even Jesus, God in the flesh, only spoke in one place to one person or one group of people at a time. Think about that. Think about that. You become overwhelmed with this message, with this burden that we bear to to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody, and we think about it. Well, Jesus still could have, in his sovereignty and in his omniscience and omnipresence, what could he have done? He could have spoken the gospel and called everybody and done that work all at once simultaneously, and yet he didn't do that in the flesh He modeled for us what true evangelism is, which is to find a one and to call them to Jesus. And so he modeled that for us. Speaking to one person, one group of people, one place at a time. It doesn't seem so difficult when we look at it in those terms. Another passage I think about when I consider this topic is in Luke chapter 19, I already referenced this a little bit just a, a moment ago. I want to give you the background, the context to it. This is the story of Zacchaeus. You probably have uh, heard this story in in children's church, maybe when you were a child. It's a wonderful story, but it, it, it's, it's more valuable than just to be uh, read as a child. We, let's read it all of our lives. This is, there's some beautiful things taking place in here. But we've got this short man. His name is Zacchaeus. He's a, he's a tax collector, and by many, he is a very corrupt individual. As a matter of fact, even by Zacchaeus' own uh, self-evaluation, he is a corrupt man. He's a broken man. And when he hears about Jesus coming into downtown there in Luke chapter 19, he, he decides for himself that he will see this man, and he will see what's taking place. What's all the hub-us or uh, hubbub about? What's He's going to go find out. And so he seeks out Jesus, and he finds that he's, he's coming down this pathway, and he sees a tree. And because he's a shorter man, he climbs up into this tree, and he looks out towards Jesus. And as Jesus passes by, what does Jesus say? He stops. Most of us don't walk around looking up into trees. Yet Jesus, knowing Zacchaeus, coming down that path, I believe, to meet this particular man, this individual, it was his time to spend time with Jesus. Jesus stops, he looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Verse 5. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What, what an end. What, a, what, a, what an interesting folk, an individual. Just to invite yourself over, let's be like Jesus invite ourselves over to each other's homes. And so he hurried and came down, Zacchaeus did, and he received him joyfully. And when he saw it, or when they saw it, rather, the crowd around in verse 7, they all grumbled. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, because of the testimony that you've given to me, because of your, your presence, I'm a sinner. Because you've, your demonstration and your gospel shared to me, I... I'm a changed man. And he says, my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham. He says in verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. What a picture here. That Jesus, recognizing, knowing, seeking after Zacchaeus, calls him down, invites himself to his very home and shares this message, this good news with him, and salvation comes to Zacchaeus' home. You see, where do I begin? How do I get started? There's so many on my street. There's so many in my family. There's so many in my place of business. What do I do? Even the journey of a thousand miles, what does it begin with? A single step. Maybe those steps are icy, and so be careful. But it does. It begins with a single step. We must take that step. Maybe your issue is not necessarily finding your one, but maybe it's a paralysis of analysis. You become literally crippled by the fact that you have so many questions, so many unanswered questions. You don't know where to begin. Find comfort in this, that our time and our place is, is determined by God. Our very time and place of dwelling is determined by God, and he has also called us, each of us, to be his witnesses. And So recognize this morning that it starts with one. This evangelism work in your life, it starts with one. And so as your pastor, I call you to this. Enough with the abstract and the lofty. Let's stop with the conceptual intellectual excuses. Let's stop talking about evangelism and the gospel, and let's go and tell the gospel. Let's go and share the good news. We, we've tarried long enough at the water cooler, as it were, It's time to take definite steps towards evangelism. Jesus had a focused, deliberate plan. He had a one. He decided to go to Galilee and to find Philip. He decided who his one was, and if you will as well, he will work in and through you. So have you identified your one? That's the first step. If we're followers of Jesus, if we're true disciples of Jesus we will operate like him, We'll identify who it is that God has called us to share the gospel with. Quickly, before we move on to the second question, I want to just uh, offer some other excuses that were uh, compiled by another pastor. and he, he offered this to his congregation, and I think it was helpful. And so I'm going to share them with you just quickly by way of, uh, of passing here. So the first one was this. There's, there's a total of nine, I believe. And so the first one is spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy It's this idea that, uh, that we, we, we fail to obey There's this lack of growth, and it inevitably inevitably leads to a diminished desire to share Christ with others. So we become ultimately lazy spiritually. This is an excuse. This is something that that hinders us from actually going, finding our one, and sharing this message and calling them to act and to repent. So spiritual lethargy. The second one is growing inclusiveness. We have this idea that all religions lead to God. Perhaps this has even crept in. As it's common in our culture, perhaps it's even crept into your own thoughts. that All religions lead to God. This is a very prevailing and wrong opinion. Sometimes that that view, it affirms that Jesus is not the only way to salvation. And so we don't feel this urgency or necessity to share the gospel with a specific person because we don't want to offend them and we want them, them to feel included in. Well, that's a wonderful thought and emotion, and that's not a wonderful thought, it's a wonderful desire that people would feel included. It's unhelpful, ultimately, because it's not true. Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father except by Him, except through Him. So maybe that's an excuse for you today. Maybe that's a, a stumbling block for you. Maybe another one is disbelief in hell. This is another common one. And it really undermines the urgency of of calling folks to, to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is our Father's world. He has created it. And he is in the process of redeeming and he will one day restore it. For those who are the enemies of God. For those who will not repent of their sins. Admitting that they've sinned against the one who created this world and gives them breath even now. For those, they will receive judgment from God. Just separation from him in a place, a literal place called hell. When we recognize that, it creates a little more motivation as we see this is what God has called us to do to share good news that there is actually bad news that can be escaped and not realized in one's own life. And so, calling people to escape the wrath of God in Jesus alone. Believing that there is a literal hell. Another step that maybe our excuse that hinders us is busyness. Just being busyness or just being busy. I've heard it said before. I think it's kind of a corny thing to say, but it's possibly true. Busy is being under Satan's yoke. What are you so busy to do that would keep you from sharing the gospel with those around you? If you notice that Jesus let nothing else get in his way. That was the very thing that he had called them to do. Just last week we read that as Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends out the 70, that they're not to stop, they're not to talk to anybody on the way, they're not to chill, they're not to take a vacation. Now that's not normative in every single situation, but Jesus is demonstrating to them, hey, there's an urgency to the message that I'm calling you to share, and you need to be busy about that, and nothing else should crowd that out. Having your priorities in order that God has called us to be disciples, that he has called us to evangelize the lost. Another one, moving quickly, is fear of rejection. Perhaps we, we don't evangelize. We identify our one, but we don't share that testimony. We don't share our story. We don't share the hope of Jesus because we're afraid of being rejected or labeled as some weirdo or some religious kook. Maybe it's another. Uh, maybe it's a desire to be seen as a tolerant person, similar to being inclusive. Maybe it's this uh, fear of 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 um, of uh, just uh, of being again being inclusive or not being intent on reaching the lost, th- these are all symptoms of that. So perhaps one of your issues is a lack of accountability. Perhaps it's just a failure to, to, to act and to invite. You've, 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 invite you've, you've shared the message with somebody, but you just have failed to invite them. All of these excuses or, or stumbling blocks keep us from evangelizing the lost. We have to step over them and step past them as, as disciples of Christ, as true followers of Jesus. So what does Philip do? What does he do? He shares his story. He has been found. He identifies his one. And now he finds that one and he shares his story. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I want to point something out just at the beginning as we ask this question, what's your story? It's this. Do you see the gap between 44 and 45? Before the period in 44, at the end of of 44, and the beginning of verse 45. Do you see that gap? In there, there is, you may not have known this, but there's a seminary degree that took five years for Philip to receive. There's also, in addition to that, there's a 10-week sermon series that Philip attended. There's also, you don't know this either, but there's three books on evangelism, the gospel and personal evangelism that Philip read just in that quick little period there before he went and saw Nathanael. And right at the beginning of 45, Philip recognizes that he is prepared now to go and to share the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus with his friend Nathanael. That is not true. That did not take place. That's not there. What does Philip do? What do we see? In verse 44, Jesus finds him. In verse 45, he finds Nathanael. You say, well, that's just a circuit." That's, that that's not there for that. Of course it's there for that reason. The point is this, that we can share the gospel at any point in our life. We share what do we know. What do we share? We share what we know. This is what Philip did. Did he know everything? Could he have debated Nathanael with all the, the apologetical arguments of the day? could he have sat down at some philosophical table and defeated everybody with this with the truth of Jesus Christ likely no and yet what does he do he just shares what he knows he shares his testimony he shares his story and so i would ask you the question this morning what's your story what's your story what's your testimony this is a fancy christian way to say what has jesus done for you what do you know about him Tell somebody. That's your testimony. That's what you do. It's not difficult for us to think about Philip's situation. We recognize that Philip he says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. He says, Philip says, we have found him. In other words, he has found us. But we have been looking for him. Him, who's him? It's obvious, him is the Messiah. Philip's saying, we have found the Messiah. We know the Jews have always been looking for the Messiah. For decades, for centuries, for millennia, they have searched and searched, both the scriptures and the streets, for the Messiah. They're looking, they're longing. Even now, today, many Jews still are looking for the Messiah, though he has come. And though he will come again, they still look for another. So the Jews, they're looking, they're longing. You might say, well, they're the only ones. They're the only ones looking for a Messiah. They're the only ones looking for God to speak into their lives, into their lives or some sort of a savior or a rescuer, but that is not true. You need to know this. You already do know this that there's not a soul in this world that is not looking for something more. There is not a soul in this world that is not looking for something more. Each of us, no matter how sweet the cup of life that we have drank or how bitter None of us are left satisfied. Each of us, on our best day and on our worst day, are still left unsatisfied. This is a biblical truth. That we're never satisfied. You may argue back that the scriptures tell us that, that no man seeks after God. And, and in a way, yes, you're right, that's true. But then I would argue back that that the unsatisfied longings in the heart are even God's grace to man as he gently whispers and invites them to, as Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. The fact that we are not satisfied by money, the fact that we're not satisfied by food or by, by relationships or by power or possessions ultimately points us, it's a whisper of God to the lost, come and see, come and see. And so each of the family members, the coworkers, and the children and the friends who you know that are in your circle, they're all looking for something more. And perhaps they're not looking in the Bible as the Jews were. Perhaps they're not searching the scriptures. Perhaps they're not looking for a Messiah and they don't know the name. They don't even know what they're looking for. They are unsatisfied and they are looking for something more. They're looking on Facebook. They're looking in the bar. They're looking in the eyes of their parents or the eyes of their friends. They're looking into the bottom of bottles and into the ends of needles are looking in bank accounts and in books. And as one ancient theologian said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the God. This is a truth. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And so look at Philip. He's found by Jesus, and then he goes to find Nathaniel. I want you to notice something. And we're going to throw off on Nathaniel, or on Philip here just for a moment. I want you to notice how imprecise Philip is about Jesus. Two things I want to point out. The first is this. Philip says, we have found him, Jesus of Nazareth. I want to say this. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And Philip, he, he knows the prophecies. As we saw a few weeks ago, this man knew the Old Testament he knew the prophecies of, of who the Messiah would be. And, and so he comes and he says, we have found him. He says, you could exchange that. Philip means by him, Messiah. He says, we have found the Messiah, whom the Old Testament wrote, wrote about, the prophets wrote about. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Nathaniel wasn't born yesterday, as, as Nathaniel hears that, he's thinking, okay, we, you found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? What prophecy are you referencing here? How can the Messiah be from Nazareth? This is not true. This is is an impossibility. There's no prophecy that I know of. Nathaniel says that where he is from, Nazareth. He says, that's a cow town. Nobody lives there. Nobody important comes from Nazareth. And it wasn't untrue that Jesus was from Nazareth. He was. But it wasn't a complete truth. And and in this context, it's even a bit misleading And Philip himself, I think, is a bit confused. He left something out. He could have sent something a little bit more. He could have known more that he didn't. Perhaps he didn't realize that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And I would lightly say that Philip, here his his, his message, his testimony is imperfect. It's not complete. And yet, isn't it an interesting Philip or Nathaniel's response? Just zoom out, let's zoom out and then fast forward to the end. Nathaniel, what does he do? He follows Jesus. He he calls Jesus the Son of God and the King of Israel. He, He gives him credence as the Messiah. So it's interesting that Philip's incomplete testimony and explanation is still used by God. Doesn't that bring you comfort this morning? It brings me comfort. As I consider over the past year as a, as a pastor here, speaking on a regular basis, opening up God's word and, and making mistakes here and there, being confused, not knowing everything, this is, this is who I am. And I look here and I say, Jesus, if you can use Philip, you can use me. And if Jesus can use me and if he can use Philip, he can use you as well. So he doesn't expect that we'd be perfect or that we go get that five-year degree today before we tell anybody, or that we attend that 10-week class or read those three books. All these things are wonderful tools, gifts of grace that God has given to the church that we can go and use to be more effective witnesses. And yet we see here that even incomplete misunderstandings can be used by God. So that's one. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It would have been good for Philip to, to share that. Another one is that technically... Jesus was not the son of Joseph. Jesus is not the son of Joseph. And yet Philip says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, he's the Messiah. Again, Nathaniel, he's not an idiot. He wasn't born yesterday. He's well aware of the prophecies, thinks back through and says, how can this even be? Jesus was the legal adopted son of Joseph, but he was not the physical father. So one thing that we can notice here is that both Philip and Nathaniel were students of the word of God. And they were searching the scriptures, unsatisfied, this longing in their hearts. They draws them by the, by the spirit of God to the scriptures. And they spend time searching and pouring over them. And so while neither one of them were perfect in their understanding, both were seeking the Lord as the, as the Lord drew them to himself. Philip shares his, what he knows with Nathaniel. And perfect as it is, it is used by God. And so, take heart that Jesus is not afraid that his followers are going to mess things up. When he gives the Great Commission, when he speaks emphatically and says that the gates of hell will not prevail against our message or us, he's not saying, unless you guys drop the ball. Unless you make this one mistake, he's saying it will happen. The people of God will be victorious as the armies of God and the truth of God marches on. Another thing that's encouraging here is that Jesus, after he calls Philip, and Philip runs and goes and finds Nathaniel, that Jesus was modeling for, 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 for Philip what true discipleship looked like, what evangelism looked like. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to do something, and I want you to see how I do this. And then next, what we're going to do is, you're going to do it, and I'm going to watch you, and then you're going to go teach somebody else. And this is what we see Philip doing. Philip wasn't perfect, and yet the Lord was with him. I think about a story of, or an illustration of a child watching their father do something that may be difficult. Maybe it's cutting up an an apple with a knife and they take the knife out and they watch their their mother or their father take that knife and they take that apple and they rinse it off first and they prepare the knife to make the first cut and they draw their fingers back and they make that first slice and then they turn that apple and however you cut the apple that parent he does it and the child just watches on and then they ask hey dad mom could I cut the apple the next time the dad the mom, the parent, looks and says, yes, of course, let's, let's do this. So they begin to teach and demonstrate. Now, I want you to hold the knife. I want you to do this. You've seen me do it. Now let me watch you do this. This is discipleship, and this is what Jesus did. But even then, Jesus is not letting Philip run around with knives all by himself. What does he do? He is with us. Even in the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a, this is a confidence for us. That as we go out, as we share this gospel message, that we are not alone. That we are not by ourselves, left to our own devices, but that the very Spirit of God, the presence of Jesus Christ, is with his children as we go and share. And so that's discipleship. What does Philip do? He simply shares his testimony with, Phil, or with, with Nathaniel. He says, I was looking as you were for the Messiah, but listen, I can't believe it. He found me. And he shares just what he knows. I love John chapter 9, verse 25. Jesus has healed a man that was born blind. And actually in verse 24, this is what it says. John chapter 9, verse 24. For, for the second time they called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the blind man, the man who was blind, answers, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. He says, I don't know everything about Jesus. I don't know everything about this man. But I will tell you the truth. I know this. I was blind, and now I see. This is, this is Philip's message to Nathaniel. I was blind, and now I see. And so I would ask you the question, what, what's your story? Tell the truth. Give glory to God. What do you know about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. What do you know about him? What's your story? What's your testimony? What has he done in your life? Listen, if you, if you wait until your theology is 100 and that you know everything, you will never share Jesus. You'll never open your mouth. Just tell folks what you know. Tell folks what he's done in your own life. It can be difficult to trust advertisements and commercials because we, we're well aware that many people are for sale. It's just the way it is, right? You know, you got a product that you want to sell, whether it's a good product or a bad product, what do you want to do? Well, you want to find somebody who the pub, whom the public trusts. You find and you identify that person and then you say, I had this product and I'd really like for you to just try it. And then once you try it, you're going to love it. And then for free, will you come and let me put your picture all over the world and the internet and the interwebs? And will you let me do that for free? Right? Michael Jordan and all the rest are like, of course, That's, that sounds good. This is a wonderful product. No, everybody that advertises, they're, they're for sale. And so even though we know this, it, it really doesn't let us be, cause us to become even more untrusting. We know that this person, that Grant Hill who drinks Sprite and now he can dunk because he drank Sprite, even, we know that that's not true and yet what do we do? Well, we find ourselves... Referencing that 1996 commercial, we go buy a case of Sprite, we head down to the basketball court, and we try to dunk like our hero, right? Because we hear this personal testimony, and a personal testimony is powerful. It moves us. When somebody looks into their eye, our eyes and they say, I don't know what happened. I just, other than this, I just started using this specialist, or I just started taking these supplements, or I just started wearing these shoes, This is all that Philip is doing. He's not for sale. He has no motivation aside from the fact that he knows this. He was blind and now he can see. And he was looking and now he has been found. He's just sharing his story. I was doing this and this happened to me. And so again, I ask the question, what's your story? What's your story? Another interesting point. Philip says, of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Well, How did they know what to be looking for? How did they know to, who to be looking for? Well, they heard the whispers of God the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, they were told that the Messiah would be a head crusher and so they began to look for a head crusher and in Deuteronomy chapter 18, they're told that this man would be better than Moses, but like him. In Psalm 16, they're told that he would be God's holy one. In Jeremiah 31, they were told that he would arbitrate a new covenant. In Isaiah chapter 7, that he would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 52 and 53, that he would be the silent, suffering servant. And in Daniel chapter 7, that he would be the reigning son of man, God himself, ushering in the kingdom. So they, and many more... See these prophecies, and they read and they study and they plan and they look. And this is how they knew. They were looking. This is interesting. This is good for us. May we be like Philip and Nathaniel, that we would know the testimonies, the scriptures, the prophets of old, and that would even guide us. And so as we think about our own testimony, it's helpful for us to read, to study, to prepare. But ultimately, all of these things are worthless if we do not share. We have to be focused and intentional with our testimony. What, what do we know of Jesus? Share what we know. I don't know everything. Share what you know. As we move on to the last question, I want to just offer this exercise for you this morning. You say it's so. Pastor Josh, it's been easy for me to identify the one. Maybe it hasn't been easy for you, but you've gotten to that place now. I've got that. Check step one. I've found my one. This is who the Lord wants me to share this good news with. Then you say, I don't know what to share. What do I tell them? Do I tell them of Genesis 3.15? Do I try to open up Daniel chapter 7 from that sermon two weeks ago, and we look at that? Where, Where do I start? Where do I go? I think it's helpful that you think of your own personal testimony. As it comes to you, as you know what, what the Lord has done in your life, and th- th- write it out. This is a wonderful exercise. You might say, well, th- I don't know if I can do it. I really would encourage you, if you've never done it, to write your own personal testimony out. and It'll do two things for you. One, it will give you clarity when you share that message with others. This is just practical, nuts and bolts. How do we evangelize? How do we share? Well, we... We have to have clarity on what we're even going to be sharing. And so what will you share? Write it out. And here's another wonderful benefit of of writing out your your, your testimony. It gives you assurance that you are actually following Jesus instead of of assuming that you are a believer. Instead of assuming that you're a Christian because by some sort of proxy and some pixie dust fell on you from your parents or from the, the guy who lived next door... You know, you just assume that you're a Christian. If you would actually write down your testimony and then compare it with Scripture, is this even biblical? I don't say this to, to poke fun, but with a broken heart. How many times have I heard the testimony of a would-be Christian and it lacked any biblical foundation? Many times. Sadly. Some story of conversion, quote-unquote, that lacked any biblical definition of conversion, no repentance, no faith in Jesus, only reform morally, only change of location, only change of a few of their habits, no following, no lordship. And so we know as we write out that testimony, then we compare it with scripture, this is not true, or this is true. And so It gives us clarity when we write our own testimony, when we actually think through what we will share with others. It brings it fresh on our minds. Also, it helps us to know that we are even, as the scriptures say, in the faith. We really are believing what the scriptures say is the gospel. And so finally, as we share our story, as we tell people what it is that the Lord has done in our lives, what we have done as a result of hearing the scriptures, We must also give a clear invitation and so the last question what's their play what's their play what are they to do about it lots of times when you hear information it's helpful if you ask this question so what not in a pompous way in an obnoxious way but if we hear an important piece of information we ask the question so what what does this mean now the fact that life begins at conception what do we what do we do with this information now Well, truth calls us to action. So we ask the question, so what? When we share the truth of our testimony personally, we say, this is what the Lord has done for us. I was destined for hell. I I hated the Lord, and I was loving my sin and myself. And yet Jesus found me. He opened my eyes. He showed me that my sinfulness was bringing damnation upon myself and that if I did not repent of my sins and place my faith in Jesus, that I would spend eternity separated from my Maker in a place called hell. This is what Philip did. He shared, in a sense, he just shared what he knew. He shared his personal testimony. Nathaniel offers his rebuttal, right? Because you know what? Philip's uh, testimony wasn't airtight. It wasn't perfect. But in the end, what does Philip say to him? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip could have jumped into the weeds there. He could have jumped into the, to the mud pit and had this wrestling match. He didn't even have all the facts himself. He could have done that, but what does he do instead? He offers an invitation. What does he say? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. You see, evangelism, listen, is, it's more than a statement of fact. It's an invitation to act. It's an invitation to come and see. Evangelism is more than a statement of fact. It's an invitation to act. It's an invitation to believe. It's an invitation to taste and see. As Psalm 34 says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Philip offers to Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see for yourself. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything, but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. And I know that this man, Philip says, is the Messiah. He's the one we've been seeking for, and now he has sought us and found us. Come and see. Oftentimes, our evangelism efforts may look like this. Here's the disciple of Jesus. Hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Some dude, oh, yeah? Jesus, Jesus' disciple says, yep. And then the crickets begin. And there's no call to action. And there's nothing more. Hey, Jesus will forgive sins, we might say. Oh, really? Jesus is is the Son of God. Yeah. That's really nice. Good. And we don't follow it up. Instead, we should offer, come and see. We should offer, hey, repent and believe. This is what Philip, again, does for Nathaniel. Come and see. He invites him in. So often we, we think of evangelism, we think it's inviting somebody to church. That's a wonderful thing. It's in a sense that's come and see. But it's so much more than that. E- even to the point we might say, well, sometimes evangelism is just living a light, letting my light shine so that people around me will see, and then they'll be like, oh, hey, he, he seems different. I'm going to trust in Jesus and repent of my sins because of that. Well, this is possible but unlikely. And so we, we say this, well, preaching the gospel always in- includes using words. It always does. But even now, that's a good step. Hey, let's preach the gospel. But let's not just end with sharing our testimony and, st- and offering a statement of fact, but actually calling people to come and see, calling people to repent of their sins, calling people to, re- to believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see, Philip didn't know what he didn't know. He only knew what he knew. He didn't argue with Nate. What did he do? He just invited him to Jesus. Prejudice and doubts and unbelief, all of that behind him. Come on. Come with it. Bring it to Jesus. Come and see. And so this morning, as we come to a close, there's really two types of people here this morning. There's one that I would offer to this, I would offer this to you this morning. Come and see. If you're far from Jesus this morning... If so you have no relationship with him, if you're living in your sin, if you, your soul is unsatisfied, as Philip said to Nathaniel, I say to you, come and see. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. I would end with that invitation by saying, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. And if you'll do that, he will forgive you of your sins. God the Father will forgive you of your sins. and You will spend eternity with him, pardoned and restored and even... In this life, begin to see the kingdom of God in your life and restoration as well. If you're the other this morning, if you say, I know of his goodness. I have tasted and I've seen that Jesus is good. I know that he's the Messiah and that he alone has arbitrated this new covenant. And now he rules and reigns even in my own life. If that's you here this morning, I would invite you to this. I would call you to this rather. Invite others to come and see. Invite others to come and see. Listen to this final statement. The Great Commission involves an intentional sharing of essential information followed by a clear invitation. And so what's your story? What information do you have to share? What has Jesus done in your life? Past that, who's your one? Who who are you to take that story and share it with? And then finally, when you do, clearly give them instructions on what they're to do next. And don't just give information. Give the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have done just this for us. For so many of us gathered this morning. You knew us. You knew where we were. And you, in your sovereignty, with your prerogative, you decided to come to our location, and to call us. And we responded, many of us here this morning, saints, disciples of Jesus, Christians as it were. So we've received this truth, we've tasted and seen that you're good, but God, would you empower us to go and to fulfill the great commission that you've called us to? That we would get in line of the disciples through the ages who stand behind you as you stir up dust, as that dust rests on us, as we follow you, seeking and saving those who are lost. May we identify our ones. May our personal testimonies be clear. May they be biblically founded. May we call those to act specifically to repent of sin and place their faith in you, Jesus. And Father, if there's a one here this morning who needs to hear the invitation for you, may, may they clearly hear as I speak now, come and see. Come and see. May they repent of their sins and find rest for their souls in you, Jesus. We pray that these things be done in your name. Amen.